It's Hanukkah in a few days, and that is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman, and uh, Thinking Biblically is a podcast that is designed to help us apply all of Scripture to all of life. And uh, before I introduce today's guest, don't forget to subscribe, like, review, share, all those wonderful things that uh, will be a blessing to uh, many people, we hope. Um, as I'm sure our time today is going to be, I'm really excited about introducing to you a fairly new friend, Dr. Mark Kinzer. Mark is the moderator of Yahad Yeshua, an international and interconfessional fellowship of Jewish believers in Yeshua, Jesus. It's a mouthful. Mark's going to explain that what that is in a little bit. He is present emeritus. I knew I was going to get that word wrong. Mark, I practiced. <laughs> I even wrote it down with special symbols and things. Emer- <laughs> went blank. I'm not alone in this. You're still muted. Can you help us out with that word? Emeritus. Thank you. Emeritus. Mark is president emeritus of the Messianic Jewish Theological Institute and rabbi emeritus of Congregation Zara Avraham in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mark is a leading Messianic Jewish theologian and one of the founders of the Society for Post-Supersecessionists. I, oh, I almost got it right. I know how to say that word too. Like Mark, Mark's into these big words. So, but don't worry, we're going to make what he says say easy for everybody to understand. He is, I'm going to try it again, one of the founders of the Society of Post-Supersecessionist Theology. How's that? Yeah, some people call that replacement theology. It's a lot easier to say. He's the author of several books, including Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen, Searching Her Own Mystery, Israel's Messiah and the People of God, and Post-Missionary Messianic Judaism. Shalom, Mark. Shalom, Alan. Great to be with you. I'm so glad you're able to do this. Um, I, I don't know if you realize you probably do. The way we met was because a mutual friend of ours um, put us in contact. That's the first time I heard about Yahad B'Yeshua. Um, and I found that intriguing, and maybe others will find it intriguing as well as you explain what that is. But the thing that really kind of connected me with you is you got to do something that I've been wanting to do, though I don't know if I would have, if I have what it takes to do it in public. And that is... I watched your debate on YouTube with uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. And um, I think both of us have a great appreciation uh, for uh, for N.T. Wright. Um, I have found him to be so helpful in restoring the, I would call it the essential Jewishness of the gospel. And, uh, and we could get easily sidetracked on that alone. And there's just so many things that Wright has discovered and has written about and spoken about that has been such a blessing, except you and I would agree that he doesn't have it quite right on the um, on God's continuing plans and purposes for natural Israel. And uh, you did your best. Um, uh, he wasn't yet convinced. And I still have a little dream that maybe he'd be willing to have a conversation with me. Um, and because I have I, I have some things that I I really want to say to him on this because I actually believe that his inability to see the place of Israel on the plan of God actually undermines the the other things that he's teaching, but he hasn't come to that realization yet. Should we be talking about him? Is that no? It's okay. <laughs> if you're watching this, Tom, um, I'd be happy to have this conversation with you. So let us know. Um, so why don't you, why don't we start uh, with you giving us a little bit of your own background and uh, and then explain what Yahad B'Yeshua is, and then we're going to be talking about Hanukkah. Okay, well, uh, yes, well, I'm, uh, uh, I was born and raised in uh, Detroit, Michigan, so uh, I've uh, grew up on the border of uh, Canada and uh, so uh, 
I've, uh, I feel like a part Canadian almost because I grew up with Hockey Night in Canada and uh, curling and uh, Canadian football and, you know, uh, uh, and Canadian bless you, coins. Bless you, Mark. I just, this is where I have to remind people that Detroit is one of those places where you have to go south, where you go south to Canada. Yeah. yeah. It's the only place. Exactly. That, that uh, was a, a, a trivial pursuit question. It says, where is the only place in in the United States where um, you can look south and see Canada? Except as a Canadian, that's not trivial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, con- so continue. Yes. So I, I, I grew up uh, in Detroit. Uh, my uh, uh, family are conservative Jews. My grandparents were all uh, immigrants uh, from, from Eastern Europe. My uh, father was uh, very involved in synagogue life. Uh, and uh, and he and his brothers were the the main leaders of our synagogue, which was the the last residential synagogue in in this in the city. Um, and uh, I so I grew up with a, a a great deal of exposure to traditional Jewish life, but it was something that uh, really did not appeal to me. I was a uh, you know a twentieth century American kid growing up uh, in, you know, reaching my teenage years in the 1960s and uh, being impacted by all of the cultural currents of, uh, of the time. And uh, so, uh, you know, while I, I, I had under, I knew something about Jewish life, it was not something that uh, had captured my heart. Um, I really didn't have faith at all. I didn't have faith uh, in uh, in the God of Israel. I didn't uh, believe in Jesus. I didn't. I just didn't believe. I was a secular person, um, and uh, you know, through a variety of different circumstances, some uh, you know, a friend in in high school, um, a seven week trip uh, through Europe. Um, where I encountered many, many different people um, and uh, some books that I read. Um, and, uh, and my whole first year at the University of Michigan before that, um, it, it put me in a place where I was open uh, in a way that I'd never been before to possibilities, to possibilities that uh, pure rationality uh, was um, not capable of uh, of grasping uh, the some of the fundamental truths of uh, of life and not capable of giving me a clarity of direction for how I should be living my life. And uh, you know, in the in the midst of all of this, uh, flying home from Europe, uh, reading a book that was given by to me by a friend uh, that was uh, about God's work in the life of uh, some, uh, teenagers uh, who were drug drug addicts and how God had delivered them. Uh, you know, I just came, I I prayed and I said, God, if you are there, show yourself to me, I, and I, I want to know. And uh, you know, within the next couple of weeks after returning home, uh, a variety of of extraordinary things happened in my life, and uh, that convinced me I had to move in this direction. Um, and then. Uh, my friend from high school introduced me to the man who was going, who would soon become my mentor. Um, he was about 20 years my senior. He was a uh, a Jewish man raised in an Orthodox Jewish uh, home who uh, basically lived his life not as a Christian. He lived his life as a follower of Jesus within the Jewish world. Uh, and the... Uh, a bunch of these uh, hippies who had come to faith in Jesus were drawn to him uh, in part because he was a counter kind of a countercultural figure himself, uh, even though he was 20 years older than them. Uh, and uh, he couldn't get, get away from them. And so he became their teacher. Uh, and many of them were, were Jewish kids. And so I was just, uh, brought into his orbit and the Messianic Jewish movement hadn't really begun. Uh, it was it was really just in its infancy, let's just say maybe uh, in 1971. And but he he told me uh, immediately. He said, "Go back to synagogue with your father, 
Uh, and uh, he said, uh, if you get married, marry a Jewish girl. And, and he said, um, don't become part of a church because you'll lose your Jewish identity if you become part of a church. Uh, and I took all of those things very seriously and went back to synagogue with my father. And now with faith in the reality of the living God, suddenly uh, the liturgy that I encountered in the synagogue was which had been so dead to me before was suddenly full of life when I uh, read the translations of these prayers. They were so glorious um, and powerful. And so from that point on, um, in this very, uh, it's a kind of paradox here, you know, that really Jesus, Yeshua, brought me back to, to my Jewish identity. Uh, and so from that point on, I, I, you know, for, for almost 20 years, uh, I was um, in a situation where there was no Messianic Jewish congregation. And, and so I was just attending a traditional synagogue in that context. And I was part of an ecumenical group um, of Christians. Uh, and so I was not part of a church, you know, it was a charismatic community uh, that was made up of people from all these different sort of traditions, including Messianic Jews. Um, and, uh, and then after about uh, 20 years of that, I, uh, we started a Messianic Jewish congregation and that was in, uh, in 1993. And since that time, I've been uh, primarily working within the, the Messianic Jewish movement. Um, just one final point is, you know, uh, in the 90s, I went back to school and, and was able to uh, finish my uh, PhD at the University of Michigan in Second Temple Judaism. And so um, my work has also um, involved to a great extent, uh, academic work and trying to develop a serious Messianic Jewish theology. Okay, so now could you explain what uh, Yahad Bishu is? Yes. Because it's, it's quite interesting that you're somebody, you know, you're, I think you're in the minority of, of <laughs> Jewish believers that have gone the route that you've gone. Yes. Though interestingly, um, you also, connected with other believers, non-Jewish believers, and yes. outside of a Jewish context. And yes. somewhere this thing about uh, Yechad B'Yeshua come, comes up. Can you explain what it is and yes. and yes. why? Yes. So Yechad B'Yeshua, um, it means together in Yeshua. And what it's, uh, and, and the very fact that it's in Hebrew is significant. Uh, because the idea is, it, it is Jews um, who who found a point of commonality and unity with one another, because they're Jews and they're followers of of Yeshua, uh, and uh, it may to some people who are not uh, Jewish or Jewish believers in Yeshua, it might seem obvious that Jewish believers in Jesus would would be drawn to one another. Um, but the reality is um, we tend to be a very uh, kind of uh, difficult crew um, in terms of getting along with one another and having, uh, having strong relationships with one another and building unity together. And the tendency has been uh, for us to become part of different churches or Messianic Jewish congregations, develop um, our own theologies, um, our own perspectives, uh, and then to feel alienated from one another because uh, we don't agree with one another, um, uh, you know, on, on all of the, the details of doctrine. And in some ways, um, we've ended up in the world of Jewish believers in Jesus kind of replicating the divisions that exist um, among Christians as a whole. So um, the uh, the purpose of Yahweh Yeshua is really to try to bridge these uh, these divides um, and uh, to to be able to say uh, you know even if we don't share the same theologies, even if we we're from different sort of either church or synagogue contexts and backgrounds. Um, we've got something very powerful in common with one another. We're Jews and we're believers in Jesus and there are not that many of us in the world. 
and that we need to find a way to, to come together uh, across those differences and support one another um, and bear witness uh, both to, God, to God's faithfulness to, to, uh, to Israel um, and uh, to the world in raising his son Yeshua from the dead. Um, you know, this is in some ways um, I was in, uh, in some ways I've been an odd uh, person to work in this field. And in other ways, when I look at it, there's, it, it, it fits perfectly. The reason it's odd is um, I've taken very strong positions um, on, on a number of doctrinal position, a number of doctrinal questions, which, um, you know, basically, I mean, I when I wrote this book, Post-Missionary Messianic Judaism, it was a very strong argument, really, that Jews should be in Messianic Jewish congregations and should be very closely identified with the wider Jewish community. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, this, uh, there were Jews, Jewish believers in Jesus who were part of the churches who felt like this Kinzer guy, um, you know, he's, uh, you know, uh, he's a, a divisive figure, you know, um, and, but the other part of me is I was part of an ecumenical community for 20 years of followers of, of Jesus from, you know, of Catholics and, and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists and Pentecostals, and even people from the Eastern Orthodox church and Messianic Jews and people who were simply non-denominational. Um, and who were who were able to come together across those various differences without like denying the the reality of the differences yeah. and still be able to to say we need to find a way oh. to love one another and support one another and bear witness to uh, to to God and God's work together. And right. so, um, you know, for, for me, that's my heart. Um, to have strong convictions about certain things and to not compromise. And this is not a unity of that comes through compromise, um, but to also to recognize that there's a hierarchy here. There are some things that are more important than other things. Um, and uh, on the, the, the things that are most important, actually, uh, you know, among the most important things is really love, love for one another and for, for, for the for for a Jewish follower of Yeshua, love for the Jewish people and other Jews, regardless of who they are and where they're at, and for a follower of Yeshua, love of the brethren in in the Messiah. Um, that's a sign, as First John says, of the fact that you know we're we belong to Him. So, right. So so to give a little bit of uh, history and context of, of about what's special about uh, Yehad Yeshua. Um, is there have been, we call them Jewish, Christian, Hebrew, Christian, Messianic Jewish fraternities for over a hundred years. Um, so Jewish people, um, and, and some of the beginnings of that uh, back in the in the 1800s was because if a Jewish person came to believe in, in Jesus, the Jewish community, which at that time would be such, um, because there wasn't the same social programs as our countries would eventually have, uh, people would be cut off from social services and this sort of thing. And the church wasn't always welcoming, very welcoming of Jewish believers. And so there was felt a need to have uh, what back then they called Hebrew Christian fraternities. Um, and so they've been going on in different forms through through all these decades up till now. Um, more recently, we have the emergence of the Messianic congregations. And so um, these are fellowships of usually Jewish, Jewish and non-Jewish believers in a, a worshiping the Lord in a Jewish cultural context. Um, but something that Mark alluded to uh, is a lot of those fellowships actually have very strong spiritual influences from the various factions of the broader Christian experience. So some are more Pentecostal and some are more Baptist and, and on and on and on. And some of those theological divisions have actually caused tensions between Jewish believers. So it's been great that there have been these fraternities that have brought Jewish believers together. 
um, as well as then eventually we end up with actual congregations. Now, I think I'm still correct in thinking that most Jewish believers are not in Messianic congregations worldwide and by the sheer numbers. Yes, that's um, the case. And so there's this theological and, and religious diversity among Jewish believers. Now, Yechad be Yeshua is different in a very unique way, and you alluded to it, um, in, in that most of these fraternities have been within the boundaries of the larger groupings of Christian tradition. So I understand there's an association of Hebrew Catholics, for example, and some of these other groups have been bringing together various Protestants. Now we have a brand new experiment, and it's not a completely new experiment to you because of your past experience, but for most of us, to ha try to have congeniali congeniality, um, a, a sense of brotherhood with Jewish believers from all the varieties of Protestantism, Messianic Judaism, and Catholic, and Orthodox, my mind and heart is blown. So we, we've been having these, uh, there's these public uh, webinars because of, this was getting launched right around when COVID uh, happened. So we ended up with webinars like everybody's doing. Um, and we've had these public and then we had for members only webinars. And uh, are the, um, I'm not saying this because Mark doesn't know it, but the format is usually there's somebody with a story and, and somebody sharing something from history some famous Jewish believer of some background. And I have to tell you, Mark, that, you know, we've had various ones doing their testimonies from all these various backgrounds. And being from where my theological leanings have been, I've not hung out with a lot of, or a few, no some, uh, Jewish Catholics. And I never met, a, uh, <laughs> Jewish or Orthodox, we're not talking about Orthodox Jews, but Jewish Eastern Orthodox people. And these people are telling their stories and all I could do is cry. The the depth of the, of the power of the Lord in these people's lives. Now, I would assume many of us are uncomfortable with some of the theological differences. But as you were just saying, to take the Lord's command to love seriously um, this is this is a magnet. I, I believe this is a magnificent experiment, and I hope it's, a, it's an experiment that succeeds. And and even the fact to allow ourselves to feel uncomfortable about some of these differences, and yet understand that we have a commonality both in the Lord uh, and in our Jewishness. Yeah, exactly. You know, and this is uh, yeah, that's been a powerful experience for me too. Uh, you know. Uh, to meet some of these people for the first time. Uh, I mean, I still remember where I, in, in one of the earliest meetings that ultimately led to the birth of Yahad Yeshua, um, there were a group of us um, meeting in Helsinki, Finland, um, and uh, in part because it's on the border of Russia. And there were a number of these Jews from the Russian Orthodox Church who were from you know, from, from Russia itself, who would come. Uh, and uh, I was uh, talking with this, this guy who uh, was, uh, you know, a Russian physicist, uh, and who was my age, um, and who, uh, you know, his experience was so incredibly different from mine. And yet, there was this connection, this soul connection uh, that bypassed all of these, these incredible cultural differences uh, and theological differences. And this sense that we belong together and could help one another. Um, and so it was an experiential thing. It wasn't, you know, it was, uh, and, and so I've experienced the same kind of thing you described, very deeply moving to me. And I think nothing like this has ever happened. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's a grand experiment of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I'm convinced that it's of tremendous importance, of, you know, for the church and the Jewish people. You know, that that Jew, excuse me, Jewish believers in Jesus um, 
are able to find a way to uh, to love one another and support one another. And I think it can be actually a sign to the people of God as a whole. If, you know, if we um, if we can transcend some of these divisions, then the the rest of the people of God can too. You know, um, so. well, to think that when the 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 Catholic Church split into the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, that's called the Great Schism. And now a bunch of Jewish believers are 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 working not to do some of the other ecumenical type um, things that have done in the past, where my sense is it's often the lowest common denominator, or maybe somebody could share something from their own difference. But there is almost this um, prior commitment that we're not really going to bridge those gaps, not really, and yet. Um, here, these Jewish believers are are talking, you know, serious personal faith and allowing each other, or putting themselves in that position where we're seeing each other's uh, other as brothers and sisters. This is real serious stuff, and um, and I'm touched by it. And I, I know there's you know there's going to be there's going to be dips and turns and bumps along the way, but that's that's life. Yeah, so that's it's also it's it's kind of a fascinating backdrop uh, against which to talk about Hanukkah because of the various cultural issues that that have to do with this uh, very happy festival, and so uh, people can see right. I have behind me what's called a Hanukkah uh, a Hanuk- a I grew up calling it a Hanukkah menorah. There's a couple other things here, too, that I might explain as we go along with Mark's help. But why don't you take it away, Mark, and tell everybody what Hanukkah is? Okay, well, the word Hanukkah means dedication uh, in the sense of the, uh, a dedication of, a, of, in this case, a building, a dedication of the, of the temple. Um, and... Uh, it refers to uh, a rededication of the temple in uh, the second century uh, BC, uh, in uh, the, the 160s um, uh, BC, after the temple had been uh, profaned by uh, uh, the, the presence of an idol there, an idol worship. Um, and uh, the story of how that happened is basically the story um, of Hanukkah, both the story of how the temple was defiled and then how the temple was retaken and reconsecrated um, to the worship of uh, of the God of Israel. That's the 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 basis of the of the story. Um, in order to um, to understand that, one needs to see something about the overall history of uh, of the time. Um, and uh, Israel, the Jewish people uh, lived uh, under the, the rule of, of various empires after the destruction of the temple in, the, in, in 586, the, of the first temple, um, you know, by the Babylonians. And so the, the, the Jews lived under the Babylonians. And then, you know, the Persians came, the, the, came, the Persian Empire uh, came in, in into power and overthrew the Babylonians and allowed uh, the Jewish people to return back to the land and to rebuild the temple. Uh, and then the Persians, the Persian Empire um, uh, was um, was undone by uh, a new empire by Alexander the Great and uh, created a, uh, a Hellenistic or Greek um, empire uh, in uh, in the, the the end of the fourth century. BCE, and uh, and that that particular empire involved the, the formation of a particular type of culture, which is often called um, Hellenism, and it, it's of tremendous importance for the whole future of Western civilization. You know, so many of the institutions and things that we 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 know things. Uh, like uh, athletic games, like the Olympic Games, uh, and the, the and theater, um, all of this uh, is something that comes from 
the, the, the Hellenistic culture. And so the Jews living in Jerusalem, living in the, in, in the, the land of Israel, were, were able to govern their own affairs basically, but under the, the overall sovereignty of this empire. And it was a powerful cultural force. Uh, and uh, it was one that really sought to homogenize things and to get the different um, groups, different nations, different ethnicities that were within this large empire to take on the, um, the Hellenistic way of life and the Hellenistic worldview. Um, and many Jews were, um, were willing to do this in a variety of different ways. And for some, it was, uh, they, they looked at it and they said, you know, there's some good things here. We can learn from this. And they found a way to synthesize the Jewish tradition with the good things that they saw in, uh, in Hellenistic, in the Hellenistic culture. Um, and of course there were others who simply fled from it and said, there's nothing good in this. Um, and, uh, and then there were others who looked at it and said, this is the real thing. It's so much better than anything we've had before. And uh, we, we really need to do is simply um, absorb this wonderful Hellenistic culture and in effect replace um, our, our own Jewish customs. And so in the second century uh, BCE, there were some of these Jews in Jerusalem who that's what they did. They got, they came into power and they took over the temple and they began to, uh, to Hellenize it. Um, and this, this led really to something like a civil war. And then the, the emperor of that particular period that was overruling and, and sovereign in the land, sided, of course, with the, the, the group that was trying to Hellenize things. And he came in and uh, made war against the, the Jewish, the Jews who were trying to uh, protect and preserve the traditional Jewish way uh, of life. And so uh, this war that began as a civil war suddenly then became a, uh, a war of between Jews who wanted to preserve the basics of Jewish life, um, even if they saw some good in, 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 in Hellenism, but they wanted to continue to circumcise their sons. They wanted to continue to, um, to study the Torah and have it be the basic constitution of Jewish life. They wanted to continue to keep the dietary laws um, uh, that were, were basic to, uh, to, uh, to Jewish life. Uh, they wanted to continue to, to have the temple Worship function the way in which it all always had done, and uh, not have um, idols, uh, idolatrous worship within the temple. Pretty basic, I would say. Um, they they were opposed to um, Jewish men um, parading naked um, in uh, in in the in the gymnasium and um, and basically engaging in athletic contests in the nude. Um, you know, so uh, you know. This conflict ultimately led to the, uh, the, the Greek empire um, taking control of the temple and, uh, and, and basically establishing an idol there. And then uh, under a particular family of priests who were known as the Maccabees, um, in a really amazing way, this family was able to um, make war, gather the, the faithful Jews, um, make war against um, the, both the, the, those Jews who were wanting to totally assimilate and towards this emperor. And they were able to win a victory and, and, and overthrow them and, and then rededicate the temple to the, to the God of Israel and to the worship, the, the religious life. Uh, of the Jewish people. And so th these issues of, uh, one of the reasons it's so relevant to, um, to our life today, both as Jews and as Christians, is we also live in this, in a culture that presses us into conformity in various ways, um, which uh, easily leads to the breaking down of the distinctives of our particular way of life. Um, 
And uh, again, we end up with the same kind of variety of reactions among us that you saw in among the Jewish people uh, in the second century, you know, with with some basically saying, uh, you know, there's some good here and we can learn some things, but we need to be faithful to our tradition and uh, and and create um, learn, take the good and not take everything from from this uh this very powerful culture um, that we're we're in. Um, there are others who basically then you know say we we can't take anything. You know we have to just uh, circle the wagons and basically cut ourselves off from that culture. Um, and there are others who say no. Basically, um, everything about Jewish life and Christian life in the past needs to be reinvented to conform to the standards of that of 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 our culture and uh so we we've got the same kind of uh challenges that uh that the jewish people had in that that second century and, and, and the, i think it's worth our praying that we have the, that leaders emerge among us who are able to guide us through it um as successfully as uh, the jewish people had in the second century yeah, and would you agree so what in the case of of the story of hanukkah the enough is enough moment came because uh, the the Greek establishment had really gone too far. I believe they had forbid the study of Torah. Yes. Um, I I haven't looked it up. I don't want to get into it, but I've read more than once that Jewish men began to hide their circumcision. Yes. I, I, I don't know how you do that. But it's a surgery. It's a surgical procedure. It's a painful surgical procedure. I imagine it would that. be. Yeah, because they again, because um, uh, you would need to do that because if you were entering fully into this kind of Hellenistic, this Greek um, way of life, you would participate in in the nude in certain athletic uh, competitions, and so it would become clear whether you you know you were uh, uh, whether you were following the tr Jewish tradition of circumcision or not. Yeah, so you end up in a, in a society where you need to hide your distinctive in yeah. order to participate in the larger in the larger culture yes now in the, in that case that erupted in uh, a revolt um begun by a man by name Matityahu um and then when he died taken over by his son Judah as you said and they became they were known as the the Maccabees um so when when they uh, rededicated the temple they uh celebrated a feast and that's what we're still doing today uh what's your thought on why the eight days yeah why is an eight-day feast yeah well it, the eight days probably they seem it seems to go back to the eight-day holiday of sukkot um you know the 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 the, the holiday of sukkot is the it, it's also known as the feast of booze or the feast of tabernacles you know it takes place always in 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 the fall usually in september or um, or October, and it's this eight-day um, uh, celebration of the harvest in the fall, um, and uh, it's a very, it's a tremendously celebrative um, event. Uh, it's kind of the climax of all of these um, beautiful holidays in the Jewish calendar um, in the Jewish, uh, the seventh month of the Jewish calendar or, or the, the first month, depending on how you're calculating it, you know, Rosh Hashanah, the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, um, and then uh, the feast of Sukkot or the feast of tabernacles. Well, when uh, in this period um, of the civil war, there was a, th uh, a several year period um, where the temple had been taken over um, uh, by the faction of, of uh, both Jews and, Gre and, 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 and Greeks who, um, who defiled it with an uh, idolatrous worship. And they were unable to observe the Feast of Sukkot uh, in, in, the, in the temple. Um, and, uh, and so uh, the, uh, the temple had been recaptured and they were ready to have a rededication. And it was like just a few months two or three months after um, they would have celebrated Sukkot. And so um, I, I, it seems like the eight days of dedication were in, in part modeled on that. There was also um, eight days of dedication of the temple, um, you know, in uh, 
um, of the other temples in, in you know, the, the Solomon's temple. And, uh, you know, there was a similar kind of dedication of the tabernacle. So the, the, the number eight seems to be also very much connected with this idea of dedication. But I think Sukkot is, is, is a key part of it because one of the other um, themes of Sukkot is light. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, it was uh, a remembering the, the kavod, the glory of God, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that rested on, uh, on the, 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 the tabernacle in the wilderness and also rested on the temple when it was established uh, by, by Solomon. And so in the holidays of Sukkot in the temple, the celebration was very much associated with light. And that's why, you know, in the, in the gospel of John, when it's during the holiday of Sukkot of tabernacles, when Yeshua says, I am, I'm the light of the world, um, you know, cause the temple was lit up brilliantly during that time uh, with torches. Um, and so, uh, you know, in this, in this particular time, in the middle of the winter, you know, when it, we reach, um, the darkest time of the year to, uh, to say we're going to have a dedication of the temple, it's going to be modeled in some ways on Sukkot, and we're going to take that theme of light, um, and it'll have even more power for us now, uh, you know, because it's in the the midst of the darkness, and then that that symbolism of you know light emerging out of the deepest darkness, you know, the deepest darkness of Jewish. Uh, existence with the temple being defiled in this way and looking like Judaism had simply been destroyed and suddenly God acts and there's victory and it's it's like light emerging um, in in the midst of uh, midst of the darkness and so um, you know that uh, the the lighting of candles the theme of light often this is called the festival of lights you know and uh, I think that's a um, you know, it, it's the most beautiful part, really, of uh, of the holiday. Of course, there's also a tradition that emerged. I'm, I'm, I expect you were going to ask me about it at some point. I was. Wanted to want to hold off on that though. Yeah. Okay. So well, we're talking about the festival of lights. So yes. over here, um, I have my Hanukkah. I actually have several of them, um, and people often notice. Well, they know there's eight days of Hanukkah, and they notice that there's nine candles or a lot of people now are using vari different varieties of oil lamps which are very cool um but anyway so this is a a, a candle type um and the the reason why there's nine branches to the candelabra is what is it's said that the purpose of the hanukkah is to tell the miracle of hanukkah and it's not supposed to have any other function and we'll get to the miracle in a moment as I, as I was saying and so there's a ninth candle called the shamash which means servant and it lights all the other candles and for those who aren't familiar on the first night of hanukkah which this year is sunday november the 28th um it's coming up soon um the first night we light the one candle and plus the shamash you light the shamash the shamash lights the one candle it burns all the way down and then the next day you light Two, you light two candles until the eighth night. Uh, we light the all eight. Um, there's there's another uh, symbol that speaks about the about the miracle, and it's a children's game played with in in Yiddish. We call this a dreidel. You see, there's Hebrew letters on it. It's a spinning top. This is actually very difficult to spin uh, because it's so big, uh, but I'm using it so you can see it. Uh, in Hebrew, it's called a savivon, which means a turning thing. Um, and so I'm actually going to try it on camera here. I have a smaller one. And let's see. Can you do this the first time? Here we go. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. And so there are games that are played with it. Years ago, I was working in a, a community center, and I had the kids play battling dreidels. So there's various things you could you could do with this. Just don't throw them at your sister. Okay, um, now on the dreidel, I'll get the big one again. The four letters 
I'm not trying to steal the show from you, Mark. We're going to come back to you. In oh, a second. that's okay. I was yeah. going to ask you the question. What are the four letters, Alan, <laughs> on the dreidel? Well, they are four letters that, that stand for four Hebrew words that make a sentence. The four letters are nun, gimel, hey, and sheen. And this, it stands for nes gadol haya sham, which means a great miracle happened there. And so it reminds us again that a great miracle happened in the land of Israel at this time of year. But you know, these dreidels come with a problem because you can't play with these in the land of Israel because of a great miracle. And this probably emerged outside the land of Israel much later. And so a great miracle happened there in the land of Israel. And so they make a different kind of dreidel that you use in Israel. And I have one. This is called a po dreidel. Instead of nes gadol hayasham, it's nes gadol po. A great miracle happened here. So I bought this in Israel. I wondered when I came back on the airplane if the last letter would mysteriously change because this is logically logical impossibility. Uh, but just so you know, I'm 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 kidding. Uh, but I always wanted one of these, and I have one. Actually, I have more than one. Um, so. The miracle. What is the miracle of Hanukkah, Mark? And I hope, you know, maybe we're going to get into a little bit of an argument here, make it a little more fun. So we'll see what happens. What's the miracle? Oh, and I'm prepared, by the way. Uh, I'm sure you Oh, are. I'm prepared. <laughs> yes. Well, um, in the, the earliest sources that we have um, about the, the story of Hanukkah um, are uh, the books of Maccabees. Uh, and... The uh, there are four. There's a first Maccabees, second Maccabees, third Maccabees, fourth Maccabees, um, and these are um, these are all books that uh, come from the first couple of centuries after um, the uh, the events that's being described. I mean, the first first Maccabees, you know, written within the first hundred years, um, uh, and uh, and they for them. This is also a miracle, but the miracle is the is the fact that a, sm- a handful of, of of faithful Jews were able to overcome uh, an empire, a vast army, um, and uh, that was the the experience uh, uh, of the miracle, and that's uh, that's really the 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 main sense you get from these early sources, but. Um, in the in the Talmud, uh, the the Talmud are uh, Jewish uh, texts that um, are sets of traditions that really um, accumulate from you know the first century on to the sixth century, seventh century, written you know the um, uh, and there a, another tradition emerges that you know m- most Jews would say is a legend rather than historical, just because it. Um, it's not found in any of the earliest in any of the earliest sources, but it's a beautiful story, and it's almost a kind of um, parable or a, a symbolic representation of of what um, what was happening um, in uh, in in the story itself. Um, this little um, this tale says that when the 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 Jewish people took the temple back, um, the the the, the, of course, there is a, a menorah, the, the menorah in the temple, which is uh, a seven-branched rather than a, a nine-branched um, uh, candelabra. Um, there you go. That's uh, that's more a picture of the the menorah that w- was in the temple its, it, itself. Um, and there was special oil that was used to light uh, the fires in uh, on on the menorah. Uh, and that oil had had to be um, couldn't have had contact with idol, uh, idolatrous worship uh, or with uh, any uh, unclean um, uh, a- animal products or anything of that sort. And according to this tradition, um, they when they took the temple back, they found oil, but there was only oil enough to light the men- menorah for for one day. And they needed more time to reconsecrate oil 
in order to be uh, to be able to use it. Um, in and and so they didn't know what they were going to do, but they took the light, the oil they had, and they um, they lit the menorah. And the oil, which really only should have lasted for one day, actually lasted for eight days. Enough uh, time for them to be able to to consecrate new batches of batches of, of of oil. And so this is very similar to miracles we have in in the Bible, um, like in the stories of uh, of Elijah and Elisha. You know, there's one particular one where oil gets multiplied. Or we can think about the story of Yeshua and the multiplications of the of the loaf and the fish. And so there's this idea of a miracle of God taking a little bit. Um, and uh, and making it go um, much further, but here it's it's then also connected with with light, you know. And in the time of the midst of the darkness, um, you know, we they take the little bit of oil they have, and it it burns beyond its natural uh, capacities, and the light the, the light is preserved in uh, in the midst of the, in, in the midst of the darkness. Yeah, so, so and that's, that's my spiel. So you and so that's the tell, story. Tell me the the real story. You you covered everything, almost everything. The <laughs> uh, this is the story that's always told. Uh, it's in every kid's book about Hanukkah. It's 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 the focus. It's the reason why oil plays such a central part. It's the reason why we eat latkes, potato pancakes. Uh, do you prefer applesauce or or sour cream? I'm, a, with yours? I'm an applesauce guy. My, Me too. My, my wife and her mother they're sour cream people, but I'm uh, yeah. I'm a devoted a, a, applesauce and potato lattes. But we the applesauce folks can love the sour cream folks. It, oh yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. We live together and love one another. You know. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really Just amazing. Just don't get any of your sour cream on my life. Yeah, I I can hardly look at the sour cream, but still <laughs> I could love those people. And I could and I could even serve it to them because I appreciate that. That's right. So in our so you know Mark read the early at the beginning referred to his ancestors coming from Eastern Europe. Same thing as me and my wife, and we're part of a large cultural Jewish group called the Ashkenazi Jews, and we eat latkes at at Passover time. A Passover time, no, at Hanukkah. And then. Another large cultural Jewish group are the Sephardi Jews, and they eat jelly donuts. Zivganiyot, it's called. Also, they're they're cooked in oil. Again, the oil theme is, has taken over uh, the the sentiment of Hanukkah. But as as you said, Mark, it does appear that the eight days comes from Sukkot. The lights also come from Sukkot. Um, and there is no mention, any no early mention of the oil. Um, I don't know if we have time to get into it. Are you aware of the controversy about rabbinical feelings towards the uh, the um, descendants of the Maccabees? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is um, uh, you know the the Maccabees in general do not um, get uh, much uh, good press in you know among the. Uh, the 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 rabbin within the rabbinic tradition and they're in the in the Talmudic uh, sources and um, in in part you know there was a concern about the kind of militarist um, development that uh, occurred within um, within the Maccabees um, and there you know well, part of the problem was you know the you had the destruction of the of the temple in seventy um, and it was it was zealots who were leading the charge against the Romans who identified a lot with the Maccabees. And then 60, um, 60 years later, you have Bar Kokhba and uh, a revol another revolt against Rome uh, and even a more terrible destruction that comes to Jerusalem um, as a result of, of that. Um, uh, and again, that there was this identification with with zealots and with the with with the Maccabees. And the rabbinic tradition really emerges in that post um, Bar Kokhba period um, in in the second century and afterwards, and in partly in reaction to militaristic types of messianic movements. I think um, there was this desire to kind of you know distance themselves. From the Maccabees and put less emphasis on a kind of um, militaristic miracle, 
and to to spiritualize it in a sense a bit and to focus more on a on a kind of the 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 spirit the supernatural message of god's action um you know rather than a purely human action um and uh, so th- that's that's my understanding i don't know if you have anything you can add or, or didn't the, the the maccabees and and their leadership lead to corruption in the among the kohanim the priestly class as yes. well Yes, yes. This is, you, you know, the Maccabees started off, made a good start. Um, but um, the, one of the interesting things is they actually were not part of the the um, the set of Jews who were wanting to completely reject everything Hellenistic. They were not. They, they were uh, among those who were trying to find a middle way, you know, uh, and they wanted to preserve the tradition, the fundamentals of the tradition. But they were they they, they were open to certain elements of uh, of the Greek culture. And um, you know, after they uh, they they had established a dynasty, um, in many ways uh, they they took on some of the bad elements of the empires around them. Uh, and, uh, and, and so there, there, there was, uh, there was a good bit of, uh, of corruption. Um, and eventually it leads to the Romans coming in and, and getting rid of the, of the Maccabee, the Maccabean dynasty. Wasn't King Herod himself a descendant of that family group? No, he wasn't. Of the Maccabees, you mean? Of the Maccabees. The Maccabees to the Edom. He had a wife. He had well. He, um, he had a wife who was um, uh, uh, from the 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 Maccabean dynasty, Mariana. I don't I don't know that his mother was. I don't think he. And that really, might be right. That might be yeah, right. And his his father was. You know, his his father, and I'm I'm not sure about his mother, but were Idiomans. But but he did um, he did have a wife who was from that dynasty. Um, so. We basically used our time, and you did refer to this. We've talked about a bit about the the, uh, the assimilation, and you really brought out well, uh, Mark, the the tension of those who embrace the whole culture and want to replace the the existing one. In this case, of course, would be God's word, a culture formed by God's word. But then you had the people of middle position. Um, is there any, can we close out with some sort of, of lesson for us today um, from these well, tensions? I, yes. Well, I think that, um, you know, the, the, I think the critical lesson is our uh, getting clear on what the fundamentals are that, um, that can't, can't be compromised. You know, this is maybe going back to some of the the early discussions we had, um, you know, there, there are some things about our faith and about our way of life that um, they're, they, they need to be non-negotiables, you know? And I think um, in, in that period in the second century, um, there, were, there was a, a coalition of Jews who, even though they differed on lots of things, they had a, a clear sense of there were certain fundamentals you know, uh, you know, of uh, the text of the Torah, circumcising your your your, your sons, being able to observe uh, the the Sabbath and the holidays, and uh, pr- just keep distinct Jewish identity and keep idols out of uh, out of the temple. Um, and uh, you know th- th- that there was that sense of these are non-negotiable items to Jewish identity, and I think. Uh, followers of of Yeshua in our own culture, we have to get clear. What are the non-negotiables for us? You know, uh, there have to be um, there have to be some some uh, some clear non-negotiables. As much as the culture presses upon us, these are things that cannot be. Um, uh, we can't compromise on them. You know, um, at the same time, um, everything can't be non-negotiable. You know, <laughs> there and. Um, we have to get clear on what are the majors and what are the minors, you know? Um, and I think um, so that we can't go the way of the, of the Essenes either who simply, or, you know, retreat to the, the desert, 
um, and cut themselves off, basically, even from the rest of the Jews in order to, to have absolute purity, you know? Uh, and uh, we live in this culture. We have to find a way, a way to be ourselves and to be true to who we are. Uh, and at the same time, to also be open that there are some good things here. Everything is not bad in, you know, it's not, everything is not evil. Um, and that we have to find a way to connect with other people around us who don't share the, even the commitment to the non-negotiables we had. One of the things that was positive about Hellenism was it had a universal dimension. It had this sense of everybody, um, in a sense, there's like one, um, the world as a whole is made up of human beings who are all actually one, one thing, one reality, the human race. Um, and the tendency before that was for everybody to have a sense of just, we're our own, we're, we're totally separate, you know? Um, and uh, well, it's the same in, in our situation today, you know? We have to ha be able to embrace who we are as Jews, as Christians, as Americans, as Canadians, as whatever. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, to be open to learn and to to um, to be connections, even with those people who are, are different um, than we are. So it's I think the lessons are to learn both of these things, you know, and to to, to not simply um, uh, become uh, you know the Dead Sea community, but also to not go the way of uh, of the assimilationists who simply were willing to go along. Uh, with everything that was happening in 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 the culture around them, it's much it's more difficult to take that that road where you you're living within the world and not of that world. You know, but that's I think the calling we have. That that's actually uh, such a uh, something that is so well developed in the New Covenant writings, the New Testament, where we have the Jewish Messiah comes trains these Jewish men to go into the prevailing non-Jewish culture with the truth of the one true God, not compromising, but allowing that truth to find its way into these other cultures without turning them into Jewish enclaves. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, right. it's, it's fascinating, actually, especially when we understand that uh, what they were really coming up against like we think of, oh, it's such a successful mission, but but actually, uh, to think you had these these Jewish men who, were, who grew up in a, a more or less a closed Jewish environment, um, and he, even Paul was more cosmopolitan, but even then, and to work out how the the truth of the one true God was going to pervade the rest of the diverse world, it's really really something. And so then we have the opportunity to know the shamash of God, the servant of God, who's the light of the world, who lights us up, that we might be the light of the world, so that we could be like a Hanukkiah to, to the whole world. And as we know, we talk about distinction, the light doesn't compromise. But but we, we have a hard time in, in knowing what things we uh, we can adopt, what things you know aren't a big deal, and what things we have to stand against. But when it comes to standing against what we have to stand against, it could cost us our lives. Well, Mark, thank you so much for doing this. It'd be wonderful. There's some other things that we were talking about before we we came on that I would love to explore with you. And if you're open, I'd love to have you back. Um, you don't have to make a commitment now, uh, but we'll be in touch. But thank you so much uh, for doing this with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Alan. Before you go, what's the best way for people if they want to get to know your your books or get to know you better? Uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, uh, I do have a website, um, markkinzer.com. Uh, and uh, so, you know, M-A-R-K-K-I-N-Z-E-R. Uh, and, and that's uh, Zed, Zed for you Canadians out there. That's oh yes, thank you. Yeah, that's not, I'm that. bilingual. <laughs> yeah. So uh, markkinzer.com. I will list it in the description so you can access it there. Of course, if you have any questions for me, you can uh, email me at comments at, to at uh, always 
Torahbytes tends to be on my mind. Don't forget to check out Torahbytes.org. But this is Thinking Biblically. So it's comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Mark, again, thank you so much. My pleasure. So, again, you can contact Mark at markkinzer.com. The link will be down below in the description. Don't forget to comment and share and subscribe. And, again, you can email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And so until next time, oh, happy Hanukkah. This is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. (laughs) 